This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Hello, hello, my Let's Keep It Real people. I know you've been telling me the holiday, Sandy. I try so hard not to get overwhelmed and stressed, but still, here I am. So this is perfect timing. I can't wait for you to talk to my next guest, Clint Callahan, with a 23 career spanning social work therapy and life coaching, has significantly improved many lives and relationships, created the 1%, you heard me, the 1% per day transformational system offering practical psychological tools to counter burnout and stress, especially now. Hi, Clint. How are you? I'm doing good. I actually have to, I'm sorry, but I have to pause right now. I have a client wow. that randomly showed up. I have to go talk to him for one minute. Oh, I, I love that. And this was and not I need planned. to go tell him that I have to, that he is actually due tomorrow, not today. Go do it. Go do it. Thanks. All right, guys. So why Clint had a client that showed up on the wrong day. Is that the coolest thing? I mean, it's not the coolest thing, but you know, I'm probably not going to cut this out because this is how it goes. And the reason that I wanted to bring Clint on right about now is because, yes, we all do encounter stress and feeling overwhelmed. But for some reason, during the holidays, when we really, really want to have the most fun, we also feel the most stressed. So Clint, probably your client is getting confused because it's the holidays. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, most definitely. Yeah. So I'm back uh, now. Sorry about that. That's all so right. Yeah, when it comes to stress in the holidays, I'll just jump right in because I like to do that stuff. Stress in the holidays is one of the biggest things, which I find them, I, which I've found, and especially since I've done all my own work over the last 47 years of trying to figure out this thing called life. Yeah. What I found is that you have to remember the key thing that I've learned is that everything is made up, but we forget that as human beings. The story we tell ourselves about how the day goes, the story we tell ourselves about the way the holidays are supposed to go, the, the story of what holidays are, everything is made up. That's the thing that we forget almost all the time, that None of this is really real. The only thing that's real is how do you feel in this moment? What mm -hmm. do you want this moment to be like? If you don't like the way the moment is, change the story. You're the author. We forget that about life, that we're the author of our story. So if you don't like it, stop, pause, take a breath, figure out why is it veering off track and where can I go next? How can I change this story? And that's really what... That's really what my work is all about, is that. I know. And in most of the things that are so profound, they really are simple, but mm -hmm. in practice, not so much. Oh, you yeah. know, when you say it, you're like, okay. Yeah, so it's easy. So easy peasy. I'm just going to tell myself a different story. All right. Yeah. But before we go down that, mm -hmm. wow. Sure. I need to know your one word. So yeah. give me one word. Whatever it is, good, bad, or ugly, that pops in your head that describes your past 30 days, and then why'd you pick that word? Ooh, that's a good one. Mm. 
Let me think about that. Um, I would just say that the one word that pops into my head for the last 30 days was hectic. Okay. Hectic. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us about your world in hectic, Clint. Yes. Heck, well, it's hectic for me is it's juggling, you know, getting ready for the holidays, of course, and going on vacation and doing all that stuff and juggling where my clients are going to go, where my clients are at, how they're doing, if they're, you know, stressed out, not stressed out and all that and how to help them manage the holiday season. This is really my busy time of year because let's face it, this is when we are the most stressed. And so there's that. And then, of course, there's juggling my family stuff with my kids and with my wife and with just all those other parts of your life and it can get kind of hectic. But what happens when things become hectic is I thrive in hectic. I don't know why I'm built that way. I love it when it's hectic. It makes me feel like I'm at my most alive when that happens. But it still reminds me that it comes back to the other word that I try to live by every day, which is being present. So even when it's hectic, I still try to be present because hectic doesn't define my life. It, I don't want it to define my life. It's mm. a state that happens in my life, but I try to not let it. I try to do my best to stay present and be present with everybody that I'm with because that's what life for me is really all about. And that's one of the things that I want people to understand is that it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be present, but it's really hard to be present because our brain is designed to worry about the future and to always lament the things that we could have done better in the past. So staying here and now is one of the most difficult things in the world to do because our biology is totally against it. It's like, no, no, you don't need to be here now. You need to worry about that thing that you said yesterday to that person, even though you can't change it. You need to worry about that thing that hasn't happened yet or may never happen at all. You need to worry about that instead. And that's part of the process is how do you become more present? How do you recognize those moments of when you're trying to get pulled in the past or pulled into the future and say, but I can't do anything because the you can change the past by not making the mistakes again by living now. You can change the future by being present now. That's the thing that people most often have trouble doing because we forget that now is where all that stuff is changed and created simultaneously. Now is when the past and present needs to become the future. You know, Clint... What you're talking about, it already answers some of the questions I got from my peeps. <laughs> but the one thing that I got over and over again, mostly by men, mm -hmm. was, all right, Sandy, let me just quote it. <laughs> I get our brains are wired this way. We're wired to worry. But, mm -hmm. and I keep hearing, it's because of when I was a caveman. Why mm -hmm. has my brain developed? Why doesn't it change? to serve me well. And I'm paraphrasing yeah. a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. I say, well, that's the way you were wired because when you're yeah. a hunter-gatherer, you had to get yeah. food, protect yourself yeah. from animals. Okay, we're not there mm -hmm. anymore. No. So why is the brain still doing that? Because biology takes hundreds of thousands of millions of years to change. Mm. That's the most simple explanation is anthropologically speaking, we're really only about six percent away from being cavemen because really if you look at how the world looks six percent yeah we're only about six percent and the reason why we're about six percent because if you think about it human beings have been evolving on this planet at least from what we know for about 2.3 to 2.6 million years so 
recorded history, the last major change for human beings, anthropologically speaking, was about 300,000 years ago. But in that 300,000 years, 200, 299,500 years ago, we finally really started to settle down because when 5,000 years of recorded history, and during that 5,000 years, it was still civilization, but it was always about survival, working 18 to 20 hours a day to survive. And so then about 500 years ago, more technology started happening. We had all the sailing ships and all the different things and all the stuff and the life expectancy doubled and all of these things started to happen. And we were able to do more things like Dublin life expectancy back then was like the 50. So it wasn't really that amazing, but still going from, you know, between yeah. living old, old age was 25 to 32 you know, going to 50 is like, wow, that's that's a long time, right? It's a, yeah. it's a lot longer. And so from there, you, know, you have to think about it. So then from there, it took about another 400, 400 years or so to get to the Industrial Revolution, which was about 120 years ago. And then computers were only about 70 years ago when they really started becoming more ubiquitous. Then cell phones were about 30 years ago. Then smartphones were about 15 years ago. Then apps were about seven years ago and ai just started last year yeah so yeah. if you really put it in that kind of perspective we this is the safest time we've ever had in developed countries anyway that we are safe but our body still thinks yes yeah. caveman times because we can't process yeah. the amount of information that comes at us now because our informational capacity was designed for living in a group of 25, 200 people. Those are the people we had to please. It was usually working hard with each other to survive for about, you know, for about 18 to 20 hours a day, where we'd get to sleep maybe four to six hours a day. And yet, so we didn't have time to mm -hmm. able gaze, to think about things, to be deep, to do all this stuff, because our very existence was survive, 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 survive. Yeah. So today, when we are triggered by anything that is hyper emotional, it creates the fear response in us. Because I believe that human beings, whether we want to believe it or not, fear is the start of every emotional process, even joy. And that makes people go, how is that possible? How can fear also be mixed in with joy? That doesn't make any sense. When I'm happy, shouldn't I just be happy? Well, the answer is yes and no, because part of it is this. When you're in, at your most, have you ever been in a moment with people, all of a sudden you break out of that moment and your brain says to you, man, I sure hope we feel like this again sometime. I yeah. wonder how long this is going to last. Yeah. Boy, this yeah. is the best feeling ever. I sure hope I don't forget it. That's fear creeping in. That's wondering about the future. That's worrying about this never happening again. That's the thing is so... And the way people experience fear is they don't recognize that 80% of it comes from your body, 20% of it comes from your brain. And that's the part that people get messed up. They think, if I can think my way out of this, I'll stop the fear. But it's not that. First, you have to calm your body. Then you can calm your brain. But it has to be body first, which is why I teach people mindfulness exercises and different things like that. And really, it's a pretty simple process. I've figured out how to help people in about about a five to six minute process and I can walk people through that and it's pretty simple. So basically the first thing you do is 
you box breathe. Box breathing is a very specific kind of breathing, yeah. scientifically designed to basically turn off your parasympathetic nervous system where biological fear lives. And box breathing is a very simple process, right? You breathe in for four seconds and hold your breath. You breathe out for four seconds and hold your breath empty. Then you breathe back in for four seconds. And then you do that four times. And what that does is it tells your ancient caveman brain stuff. You're not being attacked. You're not being eaten by a tiger. You're not being chased by a bear. A band of wild you know, of, of enemies is not coming after you. It turns off the adrenal system and the fear-based system. Because when the, when the biology body part of fear kicks in and then it links up with the brain, all bets are off. Because adrenaline in the brain does this amazing thing that is also kind of scary. Adrenaline speeds up your brain, which makes time seem like, seems like it's taking longer from an emotional and thought perspective. And why is that Why is that a good thing? Well, if your brain is moving faster and the world is moving slower, if something is trying to attack you, hopefully your reaction time is sped up enough that you might be able to duck or dodge or move or fight back. That's what it's designed to do. But when we're sitting in our desk and we get an email from our boss saying, hey, we need to talk, all of a sudden that activates your fear response and your body's fear response has one end. I'm going to end up dead. That's where your body goes every time. I'm dead. Even though it's just your boss wants to talk to you, well, how is talking to your boss threatening your life? Well, your boss has power over your job. Your job is what gives you money. Money is what gives you the ability to buy and live and have all these different things, such as a house, a car, and clothes, and family, and afford all these things. So if I lose that, the body's reaction is, well, if I lose that, then I'm never going to get it again, and I'm dead within the next week because I'll starve and I won't have anything left because that's how our bodies are wired. Because that was survival, the struggle for survival for so long was that process. So box breathing turns that off in the body. Then the second thing you do is you go into the brain and you write the story as graphic as you can, as quick as you can, and being as honest as with yourself as you can. Because mm -hmm. we are great at self-delusion. We don't like to talk about the things that scare us. But by writing down the fear and then going and then doing some light exercise, power walk, quick, uh, quick, like, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, power walking, something like that, and then coming back and reading what you wrote in your journaling and then ranking it. If you rank the journaling, say, about, uh, you know, between the scale of one to 10, 10 being I still believe this completely, one being no, it's complete and other crap, then you can do that. But if you're always around five, do it again, breathe again, write again, exercise again, do that again, because this is still activated. The adrenaline system is still activated. The fear is still activated. It's amazing how slowing down and taking five minutes to do that changes your entire perspective of what's going to happen next. Because when you're stuck in your fear brain, you can't function because it's all about survival. So yeah. everything is an enemy. Everything is danger. Everything is bad. Because my brain is still wired that if someone walks really loudly past my door, my first thought is, are they going to try to break in? Even though it's like, really? You've been there for five years. People walk, walk loudly by your door all the time. No one's ever pounded on it and tried to break in. Why is that your first thought? Because what if? 
What if this is the time? What if I need to be ready? What if I wasn't ready? That's the worst language I hate. I love what if in Marvel Comics. I yeah. hate what if in real life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So let's pause there because I just want to break it down and start at the, the beginning. Mm -hmm. So we've talked before about breath work and um, box breathing. Yes. And the pushback that I get from people, and I'm mm -hmm. sure you get this too, is you say, okay, it starts with the body. Yeah. But their brain is telling them yeah. it's too simple. It can't work. Mm -hmm. And so that can't be possible. Yeah. And they'll go breathe a little and see that didn't work and then go back to it. Yep. So the thing that I keep, you know, it's what came first, the chicken or the egg, the body, mm -hmm. brain, body, right. I'm all yeah. about the movement, but yeah. how do they, how do you convince them or tell their brain like, well, let's just do this. It won't take mm -hmm. that long to do yeah. this breathing. Number one. And two, let's just stay with that part. Mm -hmm. Does it have the same effect as just getting up and moving and doing a dance reset for a minute? So some people do the box yes. breathing. Mm -hmm. others like I get up doesn't matter my mood even if I'm happy mm -hmm. I get up almost every hour mm -hmm. and go outside breathe hug a tree or I'll mm -hmm. dance around the house to my favorite yep. tunes mm -hmm. then I come back in yes so that works too because that what all you're trying to do is you're trying to change what your body is experiencing yeah. in that moment yeah. Again, it comes back to the body, right? If we can get our body to recognize we're not going to be attacked at any moment, then the adrenal system shuts off because that's yeah. what we're really trying to achieve is the adrenal system going, oh, there is no danger around me because the body adrenal system is all about physical harm, physical pain, physical death. Yeah. And, you know, as a human being, I like being alive. So I completely yeah. understand yeah. that. Right. Yeah. You don't want to do that. But your body and your brain are are conditioned and wired and designed over millions of years of evolution of survival, 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 survival. And the reason why, again, biology takes forever to change, maybe in another hundred thousand years of everybody box breathed and, and the world stayed relatively safe and there wasn't major crazy stuff going on all the time all these systems would start to decline and there wouldn't be as much concern or need for survival and you wouldn't get triggered as easily. But all of us get triggered because it's literally in our DNA and there's nothing we can do about that except for learn how to manage it now. And the only way to manage it now is to recognize there is nothing around you currently that will harm you. If there is, then by all means, yeah, if yeah. someone's coming at you and they're going to hit you, then by all means, go use all the stuff. If you almost got in a car accident, by all means, you're supposed to feel shaky and you're freaking out. You're, all that stuff is supposed to happen. But sitting in your house by yourself, yeah, sitting at your desk, looking at an email, you know, walking through a store and feeling like other people are watching you, these kind of things, that's all ancient caveman stuff in our brain because in today's world let's face it 99.9% .9 of the people don't know who you are don't care who you are don't even care that you're there and yeah. the only time they do care is if you're directly eyeball to eyeball face to face with them 
engaging them in some kind of conversation, then they begin to care. But yeah. once you leave their sight, out of sight, out of mind. It's yeah. cliche for a reason, but it's so true. So do you have, though, or do you experience clients who just feel like it's so easy that they give you pushback, they won't do the breathing, or they don't oh, yeah. do as much as they should because they're thinking, oh, yeah. about, how can that possibly work? Because I live in Colorado Springs, I work with a lot of ex-military. They oh. are my favorite clients to work with. But also, oh my gosh, it takes six, seven months to get them to maybe even try something that I'm explaining to them. Yeah, yeah, I can and see. And then that. when they do, they come back and they're like, this is one of my favorite stories. So the person who's supposed to be here today, he's ex-military, was in for 23 years, multiple tours in multiple war zones, lots of stuff going on in his life. Yeah. I've been seeing him now for almost three years. He's doing, he's doing so much better. You've been able to get him down to 25% of his last medication regimen. He's doing great. But getting him to even begin to write down what's going on up here, getting him to begin to breathe, getting him to do just that basic plan took seven months to get him to do that. And the first time he did it, he came back to me and he said to me, you did this to make me feel stupid, didn't you? And I was like, no, that's not at all. But let's explore that. Why did it make you feel stupid? Well, yeah. because after I breathed and after I wrote down the story in my head and I read the story, I realized that I can't believe I was acting on those thoughts as if they were real. So that means that I was being stupid in those moments. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, but now that you're aware of it, what's happened the last couple of times it happened. Well, I did the thing and I didn't act and it made life better. It made me less anxious. It made stuff less, have less issues and less fights with my wife, less problems with my kid. All these different things started to change because he just started being more aware about what was happening inside of him and where the story, the fear story, the fear body story was trying to take him. Mm. which was always, I'm in physical danger and bad stuff is going to happen. So I have to always be ready for the bad stuff. Yes, he has lots of reasons to feel that way because yeah. of past 23 years in the military in a multiple war zone combat area. Yeah. Yes, But the thing is, that doesn't matter because it still comes back to all of us. Every single human being on the planet has trauma. Big T, little T doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This yes. is still a process that for you, in those moments when your brain starts sparking up that fear protocol, which is the only protocol our body knows, we need to stop it. And the only way to stop it is to say, no, I'm not going to do that. There is nothing around me. I'm going to prove there's nothing around me by slowing down, by breathing, by looking at the story, by saying that the story is utter crap and then continuing on with my life. And it's one of the hardest things to do. And yes, yes it takes yeah. time. This is a skill set. I yeah. had to learn this too. I, I wasn't born knowing how to do this. Yeah, I had to learn this through 23 years of being a therapist and life coach and teaching people this to where I'm like, you know, that's a, that was some good advice. Maybe I should take that for myself and I'm going to go give that a try. Yeah, yeah. So let's stay with the writing. All right. So we talked yep. about the breathing and the moving. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you say, 
write down your thoughts, whatever in there. Do you, yeah. number one, give them an amount of time that they should sit there and write it or just until they feel finished? When they go out and they move and they do whatever and come back, do you have them start changing the story or are they done writing? I, the, 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 first, the first fear story, I say write it in two to three minutes and be as raw as you can be. Don't two to three minutes. Try okay. and edit it. Just e even if all you can write for the first minute is curse words, then just write curse words for the first minute. Okay. Whatever you have to do to begin to get the story out that's the process then when you come back and read it it's not about editing the story it's recognizing the story for what it is okay and then how and then it's going back and looking back okay why was this triggered where what was happening just before this so that you can begin to start putting up these road signs that say hey there's an emotional bridge out ahead are you sure you want to drive off that you know we, we can take this as an exit ramp here because that's the way I tend to look at things is we're all speeding down this highway of life and there's exit ramps and signs all the time saying, hey, if you go this way, there's a bridge out. But we take those turns all the time because we're going so fast, we don't think about it. And so by making those choices in those moments when you can slow down and go, okay, I'm going to put up some warning signs because I know that just before I felt this way, this thing happened. So that is my new warning sign. That's my new red flag that says, take a breath, slow down. Don't take that exit. That exit leads you to, you know, the Grand Canyon of depression or anger or fear or anxiety. And you don't need to go there. And that's the thing is, it's not about, oh, I can think my way out of this because sometimes you can't. But that's why mixing both body work and thought work gives you this action plan to actually make things happen. Because if you just try to change your thinking, that doesn't always work because sometimes our thinking can be so overwhelming that our body shuts down. And yeah. sometimes our body can be in such an anxious state that we can't even think. So it's figuring out how to use both of them to change the narrative of what's happening in that moment. Yeah. You know, I want to go to this next question because it's very mm -hmm. similar to what you were talking about. This gentleman, we'll call him Billy Bob. Mm -hmm. He normally has it when he uh, two to three hours into his sleep. So he mm -hmm. goes to sleep, but he wakes up and mm -hmm. it's this recurring thought. Like he's starting a new job. What if it doesn't work out? But he says he mm -hmm. goes down the whole entire path of, mm -hmm. oh, my God, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose mm -hmm. my home. Like yep. spins out of control to hey, how am I going to do with this new job? And, and this guy's yes. a lawyer. So what do you recommend for someone who is almost now, I said for a year and a half, still waking up mm -hmm. two to three hours into a sleep or four hours into a sleep? Yeah, well, when you wake up, this is the first thing you do. First thing you do is you make sure you're awake. <laughs> then you yeah. start, then you do your breathing. Then you get up and you go right down this story. And, and then you can do basically a cognitive behavioral exercise, which is as a lawyer, you should be really good at this. You put your thoughts on trial. That's what actually what it's called. There's worksheets available of called it's a cognitive behavioral process called putting your thoughts on trial. And basically you're acting as an attorney saying, okay, what are the what are the what is the what does the prosecution say? What does the defense say? Why is this real? Why is this not real? And then what is the outcome of that? And you put out all the different stuff on each side of the argument 
and then you have a judge render the verdict. That's what you do. I mean, it's a process that he would definitely understand because he does that. But it literally, it's cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's called putting your thoughts on trial. You can Google that, and worksheets come up that it looks like a little has the scales of justice on it and everything. I probably have a copy of it. I can email it to you, and you can stick it in the notes. Oh my god! I love that. But that's the thing, right? Is the story we tell ourselves is our reality. That's the part that people often don't like to hear because our life is created based on, basically it's a formula. Our thoughts and our feelings equals our actions and our reactions. So the way we think plus the way we feel equals how we act and react. But the thing is our actions and reactions are never in a vacuum. It's not just you in a room having an action or a reaction. Usually other people are around you. So the way you act or react to somebody else then triggers that in them and it creates that cycle that we can get stuck in. Yeah. And that's part of the issue. So it's thoughts plus feelings equals actions or reactions. And that is what the formula is. So if you can get your thoughts under control, if you can get your feelings under control and you can get your body under control, I think I'm going to have to add body into that formula because by adding those things together, it creates this reactionary thing. And Human beings, we are reactionary. We are not. We, can, we don't have foresight. We don't know what's going to happen next. So all we can do is something comes up. This catalog in our brain of all of our life experiences says, you know what? This reminds me of this specific thing right here. Let's act like that. Really? Things always may seem the same, but they're not. Because change is always constant. You always have new information. You always have new knowledge. It's like between my wife and I. I can feel like we have the same argument a hundred times, but guess what? It's not the same argument because every time we have the argument, the outcome is slightly different because it's similar. It's not the same. That's the problem with human beings is our brain is designed to categorize and label things as I understand this. I don't understand this. This is this, this is right. This is wrong. But the problem with right and wrong with that black and white thinking is it doesn't exist. Again, it comes back to the, full circle, right? Black and white doesn't exist. Because let's assign a color to yes and no. Yes is black. White is no. How many days in your life have you said 100% yes every day? Never. How many days in your life have you said 100% no every day? Never. So if you mix up 99 yeses and two no's, is that black or white or is it gray? Oh, I got you. I see what you're saying. Every single thing that we do, we may think it's black and white because the yeses outweigh the noes or the noes outweigh the yeses. Yeah, yeah. But it's never 100%. So if you throw in one piece of white into a bunch of black, it may make it a really, 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 really super dark gray, but it's still gray. Yeah, yeah. That's true. All right, so... I want to back up a bit because I know this okay. is a lot for everybody to take in and, and they're into it. Our, our audience, I mean, they're always looking for self-growth and self-discovery. So many of them do have their practices, but most of them will tell you they're not consistent. Like they're good for a while and then they're not good. They're good for a while and they're not good. You know, it's like the all or none. So and I'm right there with them. Yeah. And so when you came up with the 1% Mm -hmm. per day Mm -hmm. and that 
equates to 15 minutes a day, mm-hmm. it's more likely you're going to stay with it because mm-hmm. it's not overwhelming. Like you have to do an hour or two every day. Yes. But even in my 1% per day program, I build in failure. I build in days when I don't want to do it. I build in days when I'm just not in the mood to. I have three cheat days a month that I give myself. That I've given myself where I don't where if I don't want to do it, I don't do it. I don't care. I'm just like three cheat days. That's that's so funny. Yeah, I build in cheat days because that's the thing, is it's been proven that when it comes to goal setting, if you build in failure points into your goal as part of the goal, knowing that you're not going to be able to do it a hundred percent of the time, then the day when you don't do it, you're still on track because. Now you've reached the goal of, I didn't do it today. And that's why when you build in failure into any goal you do, you're a lot more likely to succeed because now the failure or the the desire to not do it or just one of those days when you're just like, eh, I just don't feel like it. That's all part of it. That's one of the things that I learned very early on when I was doing this because I was profoundly burned out when I started designing and building and creating this system for myself. And so when you're burned out, you barely have enough bandwidth to even get out of bed in the morning, yeah. let alone live a yeah. life and raise kids and be a husband and all these different things. And so I had to build in those days when I'm just like, I can't do it. And the first iteration of this, when I started doing this, I did it for a week and then I took three weeks off. And then I did it again for like maybe nine days. And then I took another rest of the month off. And then I, every time I did it, I added more time to it because that was my goal to just try and do it a little bit extra every day but that knowing that the the days when i didn't do it was part of the plan because i'm a human being i'm not perfect i'm not going to do it right every time there's going to be times when i'm just sitting there trying to do my meditation and journaling and nothing is coming and my brain won't shut up and it just keeps chittering and chattering and i have nowhere to go with it and that's just a part of it it's recognizing, okay, it was just one of those days. It was an off day. That's fine. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. we are not perfect. So we cannot be perfectionists when it comes to self-change and growth. We have to give ourselves massive amounts of grace to say, you know what? I don't want to. And I'm an adult and I can say that and it's okay. You know, I'm sitting here thinking of the people that I know, I consider have a joyful life you know they Mm -hmm. they like where they are they like who they you know how they show up in the world yeah i would say every single one of them it's they accept themselves raw like they're not as tough on themselves as some other people they're not that perfectionist Mm -hmm. they they are driven but they're okay on the days when they just can't make that happen and in my opinion, I, and I, I say, wow, you know, they exude joy. They exude, yeah. ha- not all the time. Yeah. And it's mostly because they're accepting all their imperfections. I mean, I think of it this way. I, walk, <clears throat> I, I take my dog for a walk every day. Sometimes there's this crack in the sidewalk that I trip over every day. Sometimes I remember it there and I step over it. But the days that I trip over, it doesn't make the walk any less enjoyable, even if I fall down and skin my elbows. It yeah. just is like, oh, yeah, that crack was there. I completely forgot that crack was there. It's yeah. that kind of thing. And that's the way I look at my life is I spent so I spent 38 years being a people pleaser, wow. being a perfectionist, being burned out, 
not being myself, trying to please everybody, trying to anticipate what everybody needed from myself, from me, trying to be what I thought they needed me to be based on what I thought they needed me to be, which was all about me when you really yeah. listen to that. And when I learned that and I really began to pull out of that and I recognized I love myself for who I am and who I am is I am a person that does not like to see other people suffer. That's why I do what I do. That's why I've been a therapist for 23 years. That's why I started a life coaching business. That's why I wrote a book on how to beat burnout in 15 minutes a day. That's why I did all these things because I have been there and I was miserable. And it took me took me the last decade of working my way out of this to where I can honestly say every day, I may not be 100% happy, but I yeah. find joy in every day that I have, even yeah. on days when I'm sick. I mean, you know, that's yeah. just how it is, is you find the joy if you look for it. If you don't look for it, you won't yeah. find it. That's how it is. That's, so I try and start my Absolutely. day with gratitude. I try and end my day with gratitude. I try to be very mindful of how I go through my day. That's why I meditate. For That's why my, my morning routine is I still do this. It's three minutes of meditation where I'm setting my intention, two minutes of journaling about that intention. Whatever comes up in that three minutes is what I work on throughout that day. And then I check in at noon and then I check in right before bed. And I do that three and two, three and two, three and two, 15 minutes a day. And that changed my life. And some days I do it. Some days I don't because I don't feel like it. But yeah. on the days that yeah. I don't, I recognize that I didn't do it. And my day is just off. But the good thing about it is, is I know that now. So I have these cheat days, but I rarely use them now because over the last decade, having them means I can use them or not. It's not like I'm going to lose them. It, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. my choice. It's not like use it or lose it because that doesn't exist. <laughs> and that's the thing that you know I keep coming back to is everything that we think, everything that we think we know, everything that everybody thinks they know was made up sometime by someone somewhere. Everything that has a name in your office, even the room that you're in called an office, was made up by someone that we that everybody decided to agree that's what this room is called. And that when you really think about it in that context, it's like, it's hilarious that we put ourselves through so much stress and pain. Yeah. I studied Buddhism for six years when I was in college. And the one thing I always kept getting out of it is, it is true. We are the cause of our own suffering. The story we tell ourselves, the way we attach ourselves to the story these kind of things does create our own suffering. So going into things and trying to not have attachment to the outcome is yeah. the most difficult and amazing thing when you can do it. Yeah. And I'm getting better at it every day, but I fail more often than I succeed, but I keep moving forward. Yeah. yeah. So I want to back up to something you mentioned at the beginning, and I did get a lot of questions about this. Mm -hmm. You mentioned about being a social worker, mm -hmm. a therapist, and a life coach. Yep. And so the people want to know, okay, what's the difference? And huh. when do you apply it? Or do they just all mix together? Because sure. there's so many things out there and so many yeah. different people out there when they're mm -hmm. searching for the right match for them. How yeah. do you know you're looking for a social worker, a therapist, mm -hmm. a psychiatrist, or a life mm -hmm. coach? And I might have missed sure. a lot of different things, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, the difference is, so as a social worker and a therapist, I am licensed in Colorado and California. 
Okay. My job is to diagnose and treat, which means I look at your, I look at your past. I look at your present. I look at where you want to go. But my job is to do it from a diagnostic standpoint for you to come in and for me to say, it looks to me like what you're having a problem with is PTSD, is, is generalized anxiety disorder, is major depressive disorder, because you meet this criteria. Maybe you need medication, maybe you don't. That okay. is that is the part of the therapy piece, is the diagnostic stuff, is where I diagnose and then treat based on the diagnosis. Okay. For the life coach side, I do not diagnose. The reason why I want to do life coaching is because I can use the skill set that I learned of talking with people, helping them figure out where they want to go, figuring out how they want to be, who they want to be, all these different things, which is a part of therapy. But therapy is very different from life coaching because it's all about trying to take your past and reconcile it with your present and your future. And life coaching is about taking your present and moving you towards the future. That's how I see the separation. So it just depends on what you're really looking for. Does it mean you're never going to go in the past, in the, into your past if we talk about if you're a life coaching client? No, because that is a part of you. But we need to figure out how is it informing on now? Because again, the only place we can change anything is right now, is looking at your how your past is affecting now and then looking at how that past is affecting your future. By understanding that, it's always going back to right now. This is the only time we can change anything. I can't change things in the future. I can't go back in time and change things in the past. All I can deal do is deal with what happened in the past today and move forward from here and hope that I make better choices tomorrow whenever yeah. that shows up. <laughs> so, and thank you, because that really helped mm-hmm. separate out the three different things in my head. But- yeah still mm-hmm. i can see the confusion for a person not knowing what they need mm-hmm. and somebody like you you're you're offering all three or two mm-hmm. and they may not know what they need but that's also why going to like so let's say you come let's use a hypothetical you come to me for life coaching and we and i sit and i work with you and we do one on one stuff and we do some work and we get some things but you keep getting stuck in these past issues or these past things where you just where there are i can tell from my years of experience that i think there may be a biochemical thing going on here that is keeping you stuck in depression or keeping you stuck in these things and i think you need to see a psychiatrist gotcha. but then then i would say because i have a clinical training and not only not just life coaching experience, but I had actual clinical, you know, where I had to take tons of tests and all the stuff to get licensed in every state is I have the actual training to say, I really think that you doing therapy and seeing a psychiatrist would be a great adjunct to being a life coach. That's what I bring to the table is I can give you in a life coaching situation, a clinical perspective that another life coach couldn't give you. they could say you know i think maybe you could use some therapy and you'd be like well why i'm getting life coaching isn't that like therapy and it's like well it is but it's not but for me when i say it it's like i can say clinically based on these things that i'm seeing i think that this would be something that the life coaching would be an adjunct or an add-on to you doing some deep clinical therapeutic work and maybe needing some psychiatric medication because i'm seeing things that that you're not moving forward because you're literally stuck by these things. 
So I wonder, because I know there's many people that use life coaches and very successfully, yes. but others, I wonder if the life coach, are they trained to know when to tell that person? Because you are, do you, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like you can say, listen, yes. you could benefit from therapy and mm -hmm. a psychiatrist. Yeah. But maybe these people are seeing life coaches and never realize it because the life coach doesn't even know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it comes down to like, you know, there's, there's coaches out there that are therapists as well. There's other coaches that do that. But most life coaches take like a life coaching course on how to structure questions, how to create goals for people, how to do these different things. But they don't understand the diagnostic and treatment side of things yeah. Yeah. Know, from a from a theoretical medical concept, which is what I was trained in. I was trained as a as a clinical social worker in in long term chronic mental health issues. So I can talk to people about things and I can see things about their family and about their life and about different things in their life that other people can't see because I have a couple of different lenses I can look through. It's like, yeah. how, so basically it's like how in the early days in a microscope, they had like the one microscope with the one lens. And then yeah. they developed the ones where you have the different lenses where you could flip the, you could flip to like, Oh, this one has 10, this one has 10 times power. This one has 50 times power. This one has a hundred times power. So with the different lenses, I can give you a deeper insight into what is necessary for you. And I would also be able to provide guidance of, I think this is the kind of therapist you need to look for to help you break through these things. You know, I, and I think that's wonderful. And I think it's great because you, like you said, you have a lot of things in your wheelhouse mm -hmm. for others out there who are with other coaches or therapists. Mm -hmm. What would be a general rule? Cause I get a lot of questions on this yeah. of how long should you stay with someone till you can figure out, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm moving forward. Is there an amount of time? I wish I could say, yes, there's an amount of time. I've had people come in and out in a month and I've had people stay with me for three to four to five years. Yeah. It yeah. just depends on the nature of what work we're doing and also your own blocks and your own resistance to looking at the things that are going on because we are our own harshest critic and our own best saboteur when it comes to our own healing because there's things that we don't want to admit. And it's for a reason that we don't want to admit these things. Yeah, and so true. I can't give you a definitive answer, but I can say if you've been with a therapist and you feel like you've made no progress for around, I'd say around four to six months, talk to your therapist and say, hey, I'm not feeling like I'm making any progress. I feel like I'm still stuck. Is there a different thing or a different approach you can try? It's, yeah. It always goes back to have the conversation with the person that you trust. Ask the question you know, is this working for me? I don't feel like it is. And then, because part of my job as a therapist is to say, but it is working for you. You're in it every day. But for my hundred foot view, I've yeah. seen you go from this way to this way, to this way, to this way. When you first came in, you could barely leave your house without fear that you were going to punch somebody out. Now you can go through a week without wanting to punch somebody in the face. So that's a big change. You know, it's those kind ah, of things. Like, they, they may not don't see, see it. it. Yeah. We don't see it because we are in it. And when yeah. we don't see it and we're in it, then we don't know. So that's why sometimes you can say, hey, have I made any progress? And we'll be like, yeah, I've seen lots of progress. Or no, you've kind of been lacking in some progress. But what do you want to work on? How do you want to change? But that's why having, that's what I was coming back to. You got to talk. You got to talk to them. You got to express the fear so that it can be analyzed and then it can be 
figured out how can it be fixed? Can we fix it together? Am I not the right match for you? Because I know that I am not the therapist for everybody because yeah. I have a very blunt style. I am I don't hold hands. If I if I if I think things aren't going right and yeah. I think you're not doing the work, I will straight up call you on it. And I'm not for everyone. Some people need the hand holding when it comes yeah. to therapy and life coaching. But if you want someone that is going to push you through these things that you don't want to go through, but go through them with you to help you get there. That's me. I can do that. Yeah. So Clint, you talked about at the beginning, and I just want to mention it again at the end, that you not only have training in this, but you know, you walk this walk. I mean, it's been your journey too. And that's what led you to where you are. So like you were in the thick of it and came out the other side of it. So it's not like, you know, just something you've seen with your clients, but you've seen it yourself. I've seen it in myself. I'm a human being too. I mean, I, I got through uh, my, my burnout started because my mom committed suicide. That's where it started is. And she told me she was going to, and I told the system exactly what I knew I was supposed to do. And they didn't do anything. And that broke me. That sent me into grief Mm. and anxiety and self doubt and made me all these different things, which led to me burning out in this field. Which then, when then then I went and did real estate, and then 2008 happened, and I lost everything and had to go live with my in-laws, and it was the most. And I had to go back to then what I knew, which was social work and therapy. And so I've been through all the stuff. There's and then I've also worked with thousands of people with everything from addiction to HIV/AIDS to hospice care to end of life. I've done pretty much everything. So there's not much people can say to me where I'm going to go like, "Oh, you're extra screwed up," because I've worked in maximum security prison for a year. Yeah. After that, it takes a lot for me to go, wow, you're really screwed up and I can't help you. Yeah. Because I've seen so much. And that's the thing is, it always comes back to, we are all making it up as we go along. It is the one truth I've learned is, I made all the stuff up that we just talked about today. I've got 23 years of experience, but I made it all up because we had this conversation. I had no idea what questions you were going to ask me. And I answered them to the best of my ability. And some days my, my, the best of my ability is hundred percent. I'm hoping I'm giving that to you today. And some days my best of my ability is like 2%. And even then I still try to do my best, but it's a bit more of an uphill climb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Clint, that's so true. It's so true for all of us. Well, we got to wrap up here. But before we go, I just want to talk a little bit about what you do in your spare time and if you're still Mm -hmm. doing it, because I think unless I'm wrong, you scuba dive? Yes. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. My son, my oldest son actually just got certified about a year and a half ago. And so we've been, I got to go take him on his first diving trip together. But where do you go? Uh, We went, we were in, we went to Cozumel, Mexico. And there's also a bunch of river reservoirs and lakes up here in Colorado Springs. And I learned how to do it when I lived in California. And oh, so yeah. Was, yeah. I could picture that in California. I'm like, where yeah. are they doing that in California? You know, yeah, there, there's lakes and stuff here that are about uh, 60 reservoirs that are like 60 to 100 feet deep. And you can go do that. It's cold. But, you know, when you when you dove in Monterey and it's like, you know, 55 degree water, it's not that cold. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> So how often, because it seems like a sport you can't do every week. So how yeah, often? Yeah, yeah, no, we, we've gone, it's, we're, we've gone about once, about once, twice a year when we use the pool time and do stuff to practice our skills and do those things. It's been really nice stuff. Yeah. 
All right. Before we go, where can they find your book? Here. Uh, So you can find me if you want to talk to me more on Facebook and Instagram at small changes, big impact dot the number four and the letter U. Uh, You can find you can find my book, Beat Burnout in 15 Minutes a Day, How to Prioritize Yourself Without Losing What Matters Most at my website, which is at www.smallchangesbigimpact.net. And there you will learn all about what burnout actually is, which yeah. is it's a systemic collapse of various areas of your life. And the place where we actually see it is the last place that people actually do something about it. And that's at work. But that's that's section number four. It starts <laughs> a lot earlier than that. And people yeah. don't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And as far as working with you, do you mm-hmm. work with people virtually or all in person? Yes, I work with people virtually. And if you're in Colorado Springs or in Colorado area and you want to come and see me, I'm here too. But yeah, I see a lot. I see most, I can see most people via Zoom, virtually, Google meeting, phone call. I yeah. pretty much do whatever I need to do. Yeah. It's great that we have that, isn't it? Isn't oh, it? I know. It's been, you can reach it was so one of the blessings people. of COVID, if you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my let's keep it real people. Come on. Clint definitely kept it real. And we would both appreciate if you shared, rated, liked it. There's got to be people that you know that will benefit from this interview. And you know what I'm going to say. Until next time. Thanks, Clint. And toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.